Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Sav this morning. We are in the uh, book of Leviticus. We are studying this morning the uh, the beginning of the Torah portion is talking about uh, very specific instructions for offerings. Um, and uh, we are at the end of that portion, of course, because we're at the end of every portion. We're at the last third of every Parsha. We're in the third year of the triennial reading. And so at the end of the Parsha, we get the ordination of Aaron and his sons. And we get the um, consecration of the Mishkan. So a little bit about this business, a couple of things going on here. So one, I want to talk a little bit about sacrifice, um, our English word. And then I want to talk a little bit about this business of ordination and consecration. So like, like all y'all, like we get to sacrifice and I'm like, okay, here we go. Like, what is our in this time? What is, what is, what is my way of understanding and relating and trying to suspend my ethnocentricity like this time? Um, Cause you know, we've worked together a lot on this. We see it, you know, every year we come back to it all the time, this business of the drawing nearer thing. Um, and so I, after looking at the work of Ilana Pardes, which I realized was 20 years ago, or a little more than that, I was like, how did I never come across this work? Like, and obviously, I, I haven't read most biblical scholarship. I'm not pretending I'm so widely read. I'm just saying there's some things that it feels like for a liberal Jew, you as an interpretation, you would have, you would have come across this because it's so groovy and so amazing. And, um, and so that made me think about, well, you know, what other things have been around for a really long time that I haven't been paying attention to? And I, and I thought about, as we came to sacrifice, Mary Douglas. Because as we're coming to all the purity and impurity stuff, for those of you who learn with me, you know already what I think about it. And most of what I think about it is based on Mary Douglas um, and the anthropologist. And, um, and I thought, you know what, I haven't really read Mary Douglas on sacrifice since rabbinical school. And I've been in the field 25 years. My biblical year was my first year of rabbinical school, which meant that was 30 years ago. And it's like, so what do I really remember of Mary Douglas? So I went back and I don't know if some of y'all know of this service called Scribd, S-C-I-R-B-D, Scribd. It's this fabulous thing that, um, that you pay like $10 a month and you have access to all their stuff. There are PDFs of books. There are books on tape. There are um, there's sheet music. There are articles. And I actually got on it when I was looking for sheet music for the Interfaith Thanksgiving service. And the only place I could find it was Scribd. And I did a subscription feel, thinking I would cancel. And then it's this amazing resource. So anyway, Mary Douglas's book on Leviticus is on Scribd. So sitting in the DMV, trying to renew my driver's license on last Monday, I am reading Mary Douglas on Leviticus and going, oh my gosh, like, oh my gosh, this is like, oh my gosh. Okay. So that's what I want to talk a little bit about is her interpretation of sacrifice in the ancient Near Eastern system, including, and especially ancient Israel. 
we we see a lot of times in the literature that the 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 animal is to be turned into smoke on the altar right when we talk about the ola the holocaust we're talking about it being completely turned into smoke the whole animal and we've talked about reach nichoach this lovely odor that god receives from the flat, from the you know the animal on the grill um, and that, that that's the offering to God. All of that remains true. What Mary Douglas helped me remember was it's it we have a relationship to the understanding of a sacrifice as there's a living animal and then it gets dead. And then it gets offered as a dead animal to, to God and the priests eat it and the people eat it. It's about food. It's about about feeding the people, feeding the priests, feeding God on some level. What Mary Douglas reminds us is that that in the ancient world, the human being's relationship to animal life was very different than it is today. And I'm also reading Homo Deus, the book after Sapiens by What's His Chops. Uh, Yeah, Robert, whatever. Yes, thank you. Nuval Harari. So I'm reading Homo Deus. And sometimes, you know, when you start reading stuff, it all starts to come together. So he talks about ancient humans' relationships to nature and the animal world and how incredibly different it is once you have industrialized agriculture. Forget industrialized. Once you have agriculture and animals as domesticated food product growing in your backyard, um, then you talk about industrialized agriculture, which we have today. It's really, really different than how the ancient people would have related to the animal world. So I want to start there. Harari talks about the fact that we, we take sentient mammalian life and reduce it to suffering and torture, essentially, so that we can eat it. That is very much different from how the ancients understood, ancient human beings understood their relationship to killing animals and eating them. Ancient peoples understood that animals had their life and their realm, and it was legit, and it was a divinely ordered system, and that they could borrow from that system life, meaning you could take a life in order to sustain human life. It was not understood that that was a given, that you could do it whenever you want, however you want, because animals did not exist for you. They were their own creatures created by God to be doing their own creaturely thing. You have a right to interrupt that and even violate the sanctity of life, as long as you followed the rules that gave back an appreciation for the taking of that life appreciation and affirmation of life in general and acknowledged the dignity of this being as a being. We have forgotten that. So we see animal sacrifice, I think kind of through the lens of our own ethnocentric relationship to animal as produce. And so we think it's terrible that you just take an animal, you slaughter it because you want to get forgiven for something that seems cruel and horrible. Only meat that was in the sacrificial system could be eaten originally. So only this very complicated, complex system 
of regarding sacrifice, that animal, as something else, not just a dead animal for you to consume, was how you could consume meat. Did that make any sense? We just consume meat. We just kill an animal and eat it or wear its shoes, wear its leather as shoes, its skin around our bellies to keep our pants up. That is treating an animal as an it, as a commodity, as something that doesn't have its own inherent worth and value and place in a sacred system. We take it and we use it as we see fit, as a thing, as an object. That is as cruel as you can get. And if you look at Harari, and it's not just Harari, it's just where I saw it recently, but talk to anybody who wants to talk about the, the modern food industry, right? And and what it means to treat animals as commodities. So it means, you. T- in his example, he was talking about pigs. Wild boars are very curious. They're very smart. They like to engage with their environment. They're very social. Now you domesticate the boar and you have the swine. So not a lot changes about that animal. That animal is still curious, social, relies deeply on social bonds, it is very interested in interacting with the environment. What do they do with, with sows, with you know pigs that are female? They put them in these cages and they artificially inseminate them. And then they get pregnant and they're kept in these breeding pens. They are metal cages. I could show you a picture, um, but I, I'm not going to horrify you. Um, and then when they get big enough, they're moved to a larger cage because they're super pregnant. And then they give birth to their litter in that cage. The the piglets are taken away very quickly. And then she's inseminated again. And this goes on over and over and over until she's killed for her flesh. We think of that as normal. We go to the store, well, some people, and buy bacon, right? And we think of that as somehow okay and normal. And I'm not condemning it. I swear, I'm not. I eat meat. I'm not. I'm saying we live in a very um, uh, cognitive kind of cognitive dissonance about our feelings about animal life. Because on the one hand, we have dogs and cats that we love and take to the vet and get their teeth cleaned and spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars on these animals. And on the other hand, we buy products that we know, even though we don't like to think about it, we know renders the animal's life absolute hell. And we seem to be okay with that. In the ancient world, there was a sense that you don't do that to an animal. You, you don't torture it. First of all, shechting, it can only be slaughtered. Shechting is still how you kill a kosher animal because it is supposed to take into account not causing pain to the animal that you don't want to have an animal die in a way that is miserable and cruel. So what what am I? Okay. I swear I'm getting there. So in the sacrificial system, it is not just that the animal dies. So you get to eat it. It is that the animal has a value itself and that animal becomes something else. We don't have to agree with it or even fully understand it, but in, in the ancient mind, And in their system, the animal became something more than an animal when it was offered on the altar. 
The animal becomes smoke. It becomes something sacred that is being offered to the divine and accepted by the divine. It becomes more than flesh. It becomes more than just steak or bacon. It becomes, it literally becomes an offering of smoke, which, which raises the animal's essence, if you will, to something higher. Okay. Again, we don't have to agree with this, but this is how they understood it. They didn't just take for granted. I can come in and club something to death and eat it whenever I want after I've trapped it in a pen for its whole life and robbed its babies from it that it never gets to bond with or suckle. So, so again, we don't have to agree, but I want us to at least be honest, right? So, so Mary Douglas talks about, it's actually trans, not transfigured. What is it? Um, I don't know what the word is, but, but it becomes something else, something other. And that was understood as dignified and I know transubstantiation, I know, Emelinda, part of me wants to use that word too. I just don't know enough about transubstantiation to know if, is, is that really what this is? It might be. Um, but yes, that idea that something becomes something else because of the ritual around it. Transmogrified, says Richard Rajay. Okay. So um, Richard, if you could put a definition of transmogrification in there, that would be great. So, so that's what's happening also, by the way, with the priesthood and the Mishkan. By being anointed, both the space and the priests become something different than they were before that. It is part of the same system. And so whatever we think about animal life being treated the way it was then to, to, to affect um, atonement or anything else, they understood it as this animal now becomes part of a higher order of things and becomes part of a system that is sacred, respectful of life, deeply respectful of life, and of the divine role within that system of life, all systems of life. All right. So we get told a lot, and we're going to get told right now in our Torah reading, we're going to get told that the suet gets burned on the altar along with the lobe of the liver and, okay, transform in a surprising or magical manner the cucumbers that were ultimately transmogrified into pickles to change or to alter greatly. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Yes, I would say yes. So that is transmogrified um, in a sacred system where pickles are better than cucumbers, right? That that if we acknowledge that pickles are better than cucumbers, then, then it's a good thing for a cucumber to become a pickle. And that is the system we're working with. Okay, I'm not sure why this is about Calvin and Hobbes, but I was not a fan. So, um, all right, so... So we're told that the suet and the liver and the kidneys get offered up on the altar for God. And it gets turned into smoke for God, even if the priests and the offerer are going to eat part of the animal. All of the suet and the liver and the kidneys are burned on the altar, turned into smoke for God 
in every single case, in every single um, kind of offering. And so one of the questions becomes why, why are the Israelites not allowed or the priests allowed to partake of the suet and the liver and the kidneys? We've talked about um, divination and we want to be sure that the Israelites are not engaged in divination. One way to do that is burn up what you do divination from, but it doesn't explain why it gets turned into smoke for God in every case only um, the suet as well. So Mary Douglas has a very interesting explanation for this that we're going to get to um, at the at the end of our talk because it's very very exciting for me. Uh, so you're, you're going to get dragged along because I'm finding it interesting. All right, so let's look at the text. Let's look at some of you know the the stuff about all of this that we're actually um, confronting in Sav. We're coming off of um, text before it. Um, so all of this before is all about the technical stuff about how one offers the sacrifice and what kind of sacrifice. Um, so you shall eat no fat of ox or sheep or goat, the chalev. That's what we're talking about here. The chalev. What is chalev? What fat? Fat from animals that died or were torn from beasts may be put to any use, <clears throat> but you must not eat it. <clears throat> we know we can't eat blood, right, at all. Um, and so we're getting a, the sacrifice here of well-being. We are getting the fat with the breast as an elevation offering. The priest will turn the chalev, again, with the chalev, into smoke on the altar, meaning that is offered to God. And the breast shall go to Aaron and his sons. The right thigh is for the priest when it's the Shlamim offering and he from among Aaron's sons who offers the blood and the fat of the offering of well-being shall get the right thigh. So whoever's on duty gets the right thigh. So it's important that you're on duty, right? That becomes a whole political reality in the temple period when there's too many priests. Well, you don't get the good stake if you're not on duty. So, um, all right. So we get all of these, these um, instructions for offerings by fire and then we're going to get our, here's our Parsha. Our part of the Parsha begins here at chapter eight. Yorevafe spoke to Moshe saying, take Aaron along with his sons and the investments, the anointing oil, the bull of the sin offering, the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble the community leadership at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So I'm not sure why they're translating it this way. Because it says, and the whole community, hakel, gather them, make them a kahal, make them a kehila, right? Kehila Israel. Hakel, here's the verb. Kahal them, right? Make them a congregation. El petach ohel moed, at the opening of the tent of meeting. Moshe did as God commanded. And when the, and when the kahal was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting, Moses said to the edah, this is what God has commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. All right. So first of all, we're going to get purification, right? The right of washing and purifying with water. <clears throat> he put the tunic on him, girded him with the sash, closed him with the robe and put the aphod on him, girding him with the decorated band with which he tied it to him. So who's him here? Who's being dressed here? 
Aaron. He put the breast piece on him and put into the breast piece, the Urim and Tumim, right? The, um, uh, the Oracle. And he set the headdress on his head and on the headdress in front, he put the gold frontlet, the holy diadem, as God had commanded Moses. You remember what it says on that gold diadem? Kadosh la Adonai, right? Set apart, set aside for Yudhevavhe. And so Moshe takes the anointing oil. This is a special kind of oil, the anointing oil. Shemen hamishcha. So this is, right? Sounds a little bit like what? Mashiach, right? Because that's that's what it is. Mashiach means the anointed one. So Messiah means the anointed one. So Moshe takes the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, thus consecrating them. So he's now, um, Moshe dresses Aaron to be ready to be ordained. But he's not ordained yet. What has to happen first in the ancient Israelite rite? In the ancient Israelite cultic rite, the space has to be sacralized first before you can put the priests in it and ordain them. The Mishkan, the place where they will, they will be doing the business that they are ordained for, has to be sacralized, has to be made sacred first, has to be anointed first. So the Mishkan is anointed and it is consecrated thereby. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, anointing the altar, all its utensils and the labor with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Moses then brought Aaron's sons forward. Now, Tamar Kamienkowski, Dr. Kamienkowski points out that this cannot be the actual order of the service. There's no way, because if this is the actual order of the service, then how are you bathed in water to be purified in a mikvah? Naked. You're naked when you go in the mikvah. So if this were the actual order of things, then Aaron's sons are standing there dripping wet and naked while the tabernacle, the mishkan and the altar and everything in it are anointed. And while Aaron is dressed and anointed, Right. That, that, so this cannot be the order, but this is this is a, a list of what happens, but not necessarily in order. Uh, Moses then brought Aaron's sons forward, clothed them in tunics, skirted them with sashes and wound turbans upon them as Yehovah had commanded Moses. He led forward the bull of sin offering. Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the bull of sin offering and it was slaughtered. Moses took the blood with its finger, put some on each of the horns of the altar, purifying the altar. Then he poured out the blood at the base of the altar. Thus, he consecrated it in order to make expiation upon it. Moses then took all the fat that was about the entrails and the protuberance of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat and turned them into smoke on the altar. As we keep seeing over and over with these offerings, the rest of the bull, its hide, its flesh and its dung. He put to the fire outside the camp as Yudhe had commanded Moses. Then he brought forward the ram of burnt offering. Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the ram's head and it was slaughtered. Moses dashed the blood against all sides of the altar. The ram was cut into sections and Moses turned the head, the sections and the suet into smoke on the altar. 
Moses washed the entrails and the legs with water and turned all of the ram into smoke. So this is an olah. This was a burnt offering, right? So this is an olah for a pleasing odor and offering by fire to Yudhe as Yudhe had commanded Moses. So God is commanding that this be brought and given to God. So God is saying, I'm participating in this. He brought forward the second ram, the ram of ordination. Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the ram's head and it was slaughtered. Moses took some of its blood and put it on the ridge of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Moses then brought forward the sons of Aaron and put some of the blood on the ridges of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet and the rest of the blood Moses dashed against every side of the altar. Again, he's going to take the chalev, the broad tail, all the fat about the entrails, the protuberance of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat and the right thigh. Then uh, from unleavened bread, he takes a cake of unleavened bread, one cake of oil bread, one wafer, and place them on the fat parts and on the right thigh. He puts these on the palms of Aaron and on his sons. They make a, an elevation offering of that, tenufa in Hebrew. Then Moses took them from their hands and turned them into smoke on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering for a pleasing odor. It was an offering by fire to Yudhe so again, it's turned into something that that God accepts as um, smoke, as this holy thing, this new thing that it is that God can enjoy and accept. Moshe took the breast and elevated it as an elevation offering before Yudhe It was Moshe's portion of the ram of ordination as Adonai had commanded Moses. So this is one of the only places we see Moshe, in fact, officiating. So Moshe is acting as a priest here. This is the only time Moshe will do that because who's the only one who has the authority to offer things and make them into things that will draw God close and people close to God? The only ones with that authority are the ordained priests. So Moshe, interestingly, is in this, 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 uh, middle, this middle place of being not a priest but in fact, doing all of the ritual that's going to make the priests ordained priests. Um, but because he has officiated at this, Moshe gets the priest's share of this animal. Moshe took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it upon Aaron and upon his vestments and also upon his sons and upon their vestments. Thus, he consecrated Aaron and his vestments and also his sons and their vestments. So there, so then Moshe commands Aaron and his sons to boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting. They're to eat it there with the bread that is in the basket of ordination. And what's left over has to be uh, consumed by fire. It can't be profaned in any way. They are not to go outside the tent of meeting for seven days. For that's the amount of time. We know this, right? We know we're Jews. We know this stuff. We know seven days. Seven is the number of completion. Right. So we know it's going to take seven days. Of course it is. Didn't creation take seven days? Yes. Right. So we know seven is, is the magic number. So they're going to be ordained for seven days. Everything done today, Adonai is commanded to be done. This keeps getting said over and over and over. Why? It is very important for everyone to understand that it is God who has given these orders. And Moshe follows God's orders to the letter. That is the only way. The ordination is 
in effect is that Moshe follows God's word to the letter. And that is what gives the priesthood and the Mishkan its special status as sacred. So that's an important thing to know. The king has lots of authority, right, in the ancient world. So does the prophet. But but the sacral system is absolutely dependent on the authority of only one being, and that is God. So it gets said over and over and over. This is not Moshe. This is not any power of Moshe's. This is Moshe doing what God commanded because it is by the authority of God that that Aaron and his sons have this status of priest. All right. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that Yudhei had commanded through Moshe. And there is next week's Parsha, Shmini. Okay. So we get the putting of the blood both at the altar, on the horns of the altar, on Aaron and his sons. Um, and we get it placed on the, the right ear, the right thumb, and the right toe. Um, at, at first, it can seem a little weird. But of course, those of us who have learned this together know, well, duh, right? It's going to be about what we choose to listen to, like what we choose to pay attention to, um, that that should be sacred for them. Um, and that on the right thumb, the right was seen as dominant uh, in the ancient world and also associated with the side of goodness. Sorry, Lisa. Um, so it was, you know, the side of goodness. Um, and so, you know, your right hand was your dominant hand and it's about doing good. And so he's ordained that make sure that what you're, what you're doing with your power, use your powers for good, right? God is saying to the priests, um, listen, use your ears to listen, listen to the people, listen to what you're commanded to do. Your job is to listen. And in, in some sense, listen in Hebrew means obey. There, there's not a real distinction in Hebrew between listening and obeying, right? So to heed the word of the Lord is to listen to the word of the Lord. It means you'll obey, duh, like like a stupid choice not to. But um, so listen, obey, that's their job. Um, Listen to the people, listen to God, listen to, you know, your your chief priest, your high priest, um, and do right with your power. Do sacred work with your hands and walk in paths that are holy paths, right? So on the, on the big toe is may you walk right in the world with an awareness of your station and of your obligation and of your duty. So they, these, these men, and in the Israelite system, it's men, we have um, discovered in the 1970s, a description of a Mesopotamian ritual that is very similar to this. Which, for those of us who really want to date these P texts to an early date, we rely on those kinds of uh, pieces of evidence. There are people who want to say that P is very late. It is post-exilic. It's after the Babylonian exile. And all of these rituals are late, and they're based on the anointing of a king. That that gets put onto the priests of Israel when they see this happening in Babylonia to royalty, <clears throat> say I to that. If you look at the ancient the evidence from the ancient world, <clears throat> priests and priestesses 
priestesses and priests, we have evidence of exactly this kind of ritual. Exactly. Except in those rituals, the the priestess was uh, anointed first, and then the representation of the goddess um, was anointed after that. So we have a reversing of that order. The space is, is ordained first here, consecrated first, and then the priests. It is only male priests. Some want to argue that that is a problem. It's a little bit of a problem because often a god would have female priestesses serving in the most intimate role as kind of the god's counterpart on earth. And same with the goddess, she might have um, priests who, who function as her intimates in the heterosexist world normative view of things. Some want to suggest you have a problem with male priests being intimate with the male God, because that causes some homoerotic challenges. So some want to suggest, you can decide for yourself, um, some want to suggest this is why the priests wear breeches. This is why they wear trousers. What's the connection, you might ask? So because if it's a <clears throat> if it's a long tunic, why do they need to hide their it's already going to hide their genitalia. So we do see in Exodus that the breaches are for modesty because they're not supposed to climb altar steps and have their genitals exposed, but really they're not climbing such steep steps where anybody's going to see and the tunic is long. So why why is anybody worried about their genitalia being exposed? Some people want to say that's a cover. That it, that it doesn't make any sense. So some people want to argue it's because they're going to have to change clothes for some of these rituals. And so you don't want a priest standing there naked, God forbid. It's immodest. Um, but the argument against that is, but they don't do that in public. When they are officiating, they're in the Mishkan, they're in private. So they're not going to be seen. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. So there's one scholar, um, Schwartz, somebody who did this uh, gender study I'm talking about, uh, and I'm getting this from Cam Yankowski's book. Um, let me see if I can, I, I want to attribute it. Howard Eilberg Schwartz um, did studies on the homoerotic dynamic in Psalms, in the Psalms literature, um, and in Ezekiel as well. And so um, using that work, another scholar, um, Rook, Cla- uh, I forgot her, Deborah Rook um, says that's also a factor. The homoerotic issue is, is there as well in the priest relationship to yod in the intimacy between yod and yod priests. And so the breaches are there to cover the genitalia of the priests, to emasculate the priests so that there is no homoerotic element, right? They are they are gender sort of neutrified by wearing breeches and covering their genitals. They are neutered in a way so that they can serve without there being this element that might be disruptive or, um, or upsetting or disturbing in some way. I'll let you all decide <laughs> what you think. Um, in any case, so we have the we have these priests who it is very clear are the only ones who can 
affect certain kinds of transitions and changes and, and transmogrifications in ancient Israel. Only the priests, only male priests. This is a move for in the ancient Near East, that it is only patriarchal. And this was the move to monotheistic patriarchy. Um, it is a serious move um, that no one else in the ancient Near East did. Um, it is a reconstruction, right, of, of the understanding of the cultic um, norms. Um, what's interesting is that Kamiankowski points out that although the priests had ultimate authority over, let's say, what animal can be offered or not, so what's kosher or not, she said, since biblical times until today, it is women who have the real authority about kashrut. So you go tell a woman something about how she's supposed to do something in her kitchen, right? You take some rabbi, I don't care how brilliant and how studied and how much they know about the laws of kashrut. You bring them into a woman's home and he's going to tell her something about how to kosher her dishes for Passover? I don't think so, right? She may say, uh-huh, uh-huh. Whose authority is she going to follow? Who's her authority? Nobody's the Lord. Not the Lord. Somebody's got to interpret what the Lord says. So yes, the Lord is the ultimate authority. Who's her, her authority? Her huh? mother. Her mother. Her mother. Her mother. Exactly right. That's exactly right. You let the, the rabbi come in and, okay, yes, rabbi. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yes, here's some tzedakah. Yeah, thank you. Go home now. Because um, how's she going to do it when he leaves? <laughs> She's going to do it the way her mother told her to do it and how her grandmother told her mother to do it because that's the understood authority that they may know from their books, but they don't cook the food and they don't serve the food and they don't know what implement touched what and how much of it was on there to begin with and how much chicken soup was in the way. They don't know any of that, these men that sit around and the Talmud and, the, and they know this and they know that and they're going to parse in this and but if the protuberance of the liver this or there's a lesion on that, terrific. Good to hate. Leave us to our, our expert business. Thank you very much. Right. And so um, so I, I really appreciate that Kamenkowski points that out, that it's like, yeah, sure. OK, the men were the official, you know, officiants, but it was the women then and now who who really implemented what that meant in the daily lives of Jews eating. And it's still true to this day. You go tell, you try to tell Mama Faye, my grandmother, you try to tell her anything about kosher in her kitchen or what makes something kosher or not. And good luck to you. And she was raised reform, my grandmother of blessed memory. But once she married an Orthodox man and she understood that it was her obligation to keep a kosher kitchen because the whole family sinned if she didn't, you better believe she took it super seriously. And you better believe she got what she understood to be the authoritative interpretation of everything. And nobody, nobody was going to tell her otherwise, (laughs) right, after that. All right. So anything, anything till here? Yeah, Judith? There is no way, though, that every mom and grandmother are going to have the same rules about kashrut. As a matter of fact, I was told fairly recently that no matter how kosher you think your kitchen is, somebody won't eat in it. For sure. 
So some another mother is going to have a grand grandmother is going to have another interpretation and they won't eat in your kitchen. Right. hundred percent. But everyone in their family agrees with the grandmother that that kosher standard is not high enough for us. Right. (laughs) Right. She's still the authority on what they won't eat because another grandmother is wrong. (laughs) Right. Yep. So human. Anybody else? Yeah, all this, is, all this all this is taking place at the tent of meeting. Yes, it is was that is the meeting between Israelites or between Israelites and God or something else? So, well, that's a whole other class about oh, where okay. is the tent of meeting. No, I'm just it's what it is. That's another class. Oh, okay. because <laughs> some people want to say it's the Mishkan. This is happening at Petach Ohel Moed. This is happening at the opening of the Mishkan. So some stuff happens at the opening, but, but the ritual happens where the people can't see, right? So oh, some things happen at the opening, but then, then the other stuff's going to happen where nobody can see. Um, but, but is the Ohel Moed the same as the Mishkan? Maybe we should all read Friedman, who wrote the Bible, because that's his whole big mystery is, what is the tent of meeting exactly? Um, all right, Margo. I can say that this discussion um, led me to a thought that in the very early days of my marriage, my mother-in-law would bring her own food when she came to visit us. And I don't think she touched anything that had been in our kitchen. She didn't make a big deal about it, but we all knew that she brought her own stuff (laughs) Right? Because she was in some ways representing the standards of her family. That's right. Because she was the authority. Yeah. If she would eat it, her husband would have to eat it. (laughs) Do you you know what I mean? Like, she was understood to be the authority in terms of whose kitchen was kosher enough for her to eat in. So if she would have to bring her own food if she didn't find your standards, (laughs) right, high enough because she would she would be abrogating her own observance of kashrut. But it's interesting, right? She was the one to signal to everybody whether or not your kitchen was kosher. All right. Okay. Ready to go to suet? A question. I guess no, huh? Yeah. A question, Amy. How, How do you feel about the rules of kashrut now? Um, well, you know, Daniel and I did that whole <laughs> presentation of, yeah, I, I saw it. it. You know, it's, it's a it, lot, it's a long conversation. So, I mean, Bikitsur in short, um, I think there's a lot of value to, to putting restrictions on what we eat for a spiritual purpose as a spiritual discipline. I think there's a lot of value to that. I don't eat pork. I don't eat shellfish largely as a positive identification with my ancestors who didn't do that sometimes at the risk of their own life, because if they were found out, then they were murdered. Um, so, so I do that as a positive act of identification with the, the generations before me who did not eat it as a Jewish act to refrain because it's a, it's a way to Jewishly eat every time I sit down to eat. I, I have an awareness in a restaurant of, right, of making choices that are about being Jewish. Um, I feel like I am much more attached to um, echo kashrut than I am to biblical kashrut. 
I understand and respect biblical kashrut in its time and in its system and in its worldview. I believe if I reconstruct the, the impulse to holiness around eating that we find in biblical kashrut, if I reconstruct that, it leads me to echo kashrut. So I don't want to eat an animal that's been trapped in a cage its whole life and reproduces over and over and over and is tortured like that. I don't want that. I don't want to eat that. I don't want to support that industry. Um, right. I, I, and I, and I openly admit that I have, you know, I am internally conflicted deeply because I do eat meat and I, and I don't eat only organic farm raised, blah, blah, blah. So, um, it's, it's a moral dilemma for me. Um, but I don't eat veal. I don't eat foie gras. I don't eat some things that I know are so horrifying what they do that I just can't, I just can't. Um, if I knew more, I probably would make more things off limits, but, um, but for me that, so the impulse towards holiness around eating for me is really about consumption. And it's really so about the ethics around um, eating animals, but even further than that styrofoam should be trafe period. Nobody should be allowed to use styrofoam and call it kosher. Right. And, you know, so I just, I feel like there's, there's a level we should make plastic trafe, right. That, uh, you know, that if we, if I really lived the, my values around kashrut, I wouldn't use plastic. And I wouldn't ever use styrofoam. I wouldn't eat animals. I wouldn't, right? There's, there's a lot I wouldn't do, but um, anyway, that, that's Bikitsu. That's you, very you. short. Jeff? Thank you so much for this. This is a very moral dilemma for all of us. I mean, all those discussions are about trying to do the right thing. I think that's part of the issue. Uh, and there's two things I just want to bring up. I'm wondering, I wondered, as a kid, I wondered this, uh, whether we call it religious or morality, is there a possibility that uh, that uh, that during hundreds and or thousands of years the elders saw that people got very sick from clams or shellfish or eating pork because they you know botulism there's all sorts of diseases that came with the whole thing. I'm just wondering. I don't know. Yeah. So people like to bring this up because it it makes biblical kashu makes some more sense. Um, but those are people who are trying to rationalize what are irrational laws. The okay. Israelites didn't need them to be rational. And if you don't cook beef the right way, you get just as sick and die just as miserable a death as you do from trichinosis from pork. Sure. I'm talking so, the old days. I mean, in ancient. In the old days, if you didn't cook lamb, the same thing that made you sick from trichinosis made you sick from beef. Sure. So people wanted to pick out things that, oh, well, if you didn't take out the poop thing of the shrimp, then, okay, fine. People are allergic to all kinds of things that are kosher. Thank you for that. I just want right? to. So, um, so I think it's just always was an attempt by the age of reason Jews to say, see, we were kind of ahead of yeah. right, even <laughs> medicine that would be only hundreds and thousands of years later. So which I understand the, the impulse to do that. But it wasn't about eating for health. It wasn't about, oh, that'll kill you. Don't eat it. If you look at the kashrut system, it is very clear what the categories are and how those categories are determined. And there's lots of scholarship that I love about about actually that it's partly echo kashrut, right, that we talked about, um, I think, last year when we did Shemini that things that have its um, that chew its cud and have split hooves don't compete with humans for food. Yeah, it was just one other thing I want to say very quickly. Some of my ancient friends, uh, 
talked to me about hunting once and they said, Jeff, you know, I was thinking about it. This was many years ago, 20, they said, yeah, we do hunt, but when we kill the animal, we, we always give this prayer over them. Thank you for giving up your life so that I can live. And that's what the ancient people, you know, there's a difference between tigers and all sorts of animals kill other animals. But as humans, we will say a prayer over you when we take your life and eat you. And I thought that was very, very special. Right, that there's an awareness that there is a sacred cycle and that there is a sacred relationship and that that is not taken for granted, that I get to kill you and eat you just because I'm bigger than you, right? It's I'm at the top of the food chain. It's that this is part of a sacred order of things and I recognize that and offer my gratitude, right? That that I, I'm given this opportunity and because we have the awareness, right? Yes. A tiger kills because that's its instinct. Um, I mean, we kill you know, for the same reason on some level. Um, but, um, right. Because our instinct is to eat, right. And to eat meat. Um, yes. okay. Thank you. To Jeff's, to Jeff's comment. That is a very integral part of the American Indian tradition yeah. to yeah. say a prayer over the animal that you're eating. Well, uh, all, finally, all, all hunter gatherers, right. All yes. hunter gatherers knew they needed to offer something back to the source or, right. else, the, or else the elk and the antelope would be gone. Right. right. They understood that you participated in the divine, you know, over, you know, we call it overflow, but whatever the divine, you know, animating things for you to be able to have them to eat. And th- that system depends on human beings participation through ritual and prayer and other things. Yeah, very clear. That system going. There are no uh, vegans up in uh, Alaska. So you right. can't, in the middle of the winter, if you're an, an Aleut Indian, you don't have a choice. That's right. That's but right. you can be spiritual about it. That's all I'm saying. I apologize. Right. Of course, of course. But that's you. what I'm saying. That, there is no whole foods vegan restaurant. Yeah. No, we get in, it. In, you know, you. in 1600 up yeah. in Alaska. Thank you. Judith. The other thing is that I had read that one of the reasons Kashrut was established in the Middle Ages, especially, was to keep Jews from eating with other people. Yeah. Because if, if you can't so if you can't eat with them, you can't socialize with no, them. Absolutely. And thus absolutely. you won't marry them. You, no, that's absolutely true. Absolutely. David? Amy, it would be easy, at least I find it easy to take what you just said about your attitude. And I wonder um, if styrofoam and plastic had existed in the ancient world, would that have been Unkosher? Would the rabbis have addressed that? Are you really saying that your ethics are what really makes the difference between kosher and not kosher? I'm saying that they had their understanding of what trying to eat in line with holiness looked like, right? They 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 took it very seriously that they wanted to eat in a way that made eating a sacred act. They had their understanding of what that meant. I don't need to worry about that. I need to understand it and know it, and I do, but I don't have to use that as my rubric. So all I'm saying is for me, if I wanna, if I wanna turn eating into a sacred act, for me, eating in line with holiness means protecting the planet. They didn't have a concept of being able to destroy the planet, right? Like that, that never would have occurred to them as part of their eating. Who could destroy the planet? Only God can destroy the planet. What are you talking about? Right. But we have a different set of of challenges and issues that that we have to confront morally and ethically. And if we are serious about eating being a sacred act or not, 
and, and rules that would, we would bind ourselves by to live lives of godliness, then I think that means certain things are off limits. It Amy, why, our ethics and values. Why isn't, why aren't the kashrut rules being, as Richard would say, transmogrified along with our other interpretations of holiness? They are. For those of us who are in the liberal Jewish world, we have conversations all the time about the ethics and values, Jewish values around eating. A lot of discussion. And there's actually a movement for um, what's called a heksher tzedek. Um, so a heksher is the stamp of approval that makes something kasher, heksher, right? It makes it kosher. So um, the heksher um, that you normally talk about is in line with biblical kashrut and then what rabbinic Judaism did with biblical kashrut. But there's a there's a, a lot of discussion about a heksher tzedek, which means you could buy something and know that it had the stamp of approval of Judaism that looks at the ethics around how are the workers treated, how are the animals treated, like what's in it that's going to you know destroy the planet or not, and that a heksher tzedek would mean you could feel good about living into your liberal Jewish values buying this product. So. Um, you can imagine the amount of agreement that would have to go into what are the standards, right? What, you know, so that's why it hasn't happened. Um, but that, that is an example of what I would prefer. Like I would happily buy. And in some ways, you know, a lot of us do buy by those labels, right? Of things that say, you know, whatever, free of PBA or, you know, BPA or whatever the heck it is, right? So. All right. Well, people, you have managed to keep me till 11 so that we are not probably going to get to sue it. I'm very upset about this. It's going to come back. I'm going to do this with you at some point. Um, I am. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.